This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Bring Podcast. I'm Jamie Bogner. This is episode 324, and this is a GABF Gold episode of the podcast. Um, we're splitting this up with two guests, and we're, we're focusing on mixed culture fermentation on this episode with two recent gold medal winners from the Great American Beer Festival. Um, joining me in the second half of the episode are Joel Stickrod and Spencer Longhurst of Barique uh, from Nashville, who won gold for their Wet Hop Strata 2023 in the Wooden Barrel Age Sour Beer category. Um, but joining me first is Kyle Vetter of 1840 Brewing, who won gold for I Don't Want to Wait in the Fruited Wood and Barrel Aged Sour Beer category. Welcome to the podcast, Kyle. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. We are going to talk about how you go about mixed culture fermentation, how you go about that kind of uh, fruit addition and maceration uh, in order to get compelling, exciting, and energetic, uh, uh, good, funky, sour, wood-aged beer. Um, before we talk about that, for years, G&D Chillers has chilled the beers you love partnering with 3,000 plus breweries across the country. They're proud of the cool partnerships they've built over the past 30 years. They know brewing doesn't stop at five o'clock and nor do they. G&D uses quality components, expert craftsmanship, and constant innovation. With 24-7 service and support, your brewery will never stop. Remote monitor your chiller for simple and fast access to all the information you need, providing you with the peace of mind that your operation is running smoothly. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com or call to discuss your next project. This episode is also sponsored by BSG and their partners, HVG, who bring you the very best in German hops, including Amira, the latest from their hop breeding program. With its classic hoppy, slightly herbal, and zesty lemon aromas, it's the ideal hop for those looking to capture the traditional flavor of a classic German lager. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more, and scheduling freight carriers should be the last thing on a brewer's mind. So why not trust the experts to handle freight for your ingredients? Old Orchard has partnered with a leading logistics firm in the craft beverage industry to transport your flavored craft concentrate blends. When you order two pails or more from Old Orchard, you qualify for freight quotes. To get started, head over to oldorchard.com slash brewer. Kyle, why don't you give me a little bit of your background. Share share some of your background, uh, where you came from, and uh, you know what your arc through brewing looked like and how you ended up launching 1840? Sure. Um, so I started um, brewing in college, but I'm, I'm from this area. So I, I grew up in a suburb north of Milwaukee and wanted to, to ski for college. That's basically why I got a humanities degree is because I was really there for the outdoor lifestyle. And that brought me to Durango, Colorado. Um, during that time frame, I learned how to homebrew um, with some buddies in college. And thankfully, our first batch turned out pretty good. So we kind of got the bug and we're like, wow, that was, that was cool. Let's do that more. And, um, it was about three months after I turned 21, uh, there was a job fair at school and one of the, I went specifically to meet and, and discuss working for Scott Brewing in Durango and immediately set up an interview and amazingly, um, you know, the best thing that ever happened, I was hired into a brewery, right? Right after I was 21. Um, of course, you know, you started at the bottom, I was, uh, packaging, Cans, bottles, labeling, wax dipping their bombers. Um, eventually started doing some cellar work, you know, um, 
carbonating beers, cleaning tank, transparent beers, those kinds of things. Um, that time period of my life ended a little quicker because I got an opportunity to um, move back to Wisconsin and start a restaurant that we were eventually going to turn into a brew pub. That was the, a long-term goal. Um, a lot of minutia in that story we don't need to get into, but uh, I ended up not sticking with that, um, with that, that individual who we were running the business together. And, um, but I need something to do. I just moved back to Wisconsin after college. I, I left brewing, which made me sad. Uh, actually, I cried when I quit that job. I was, uh, even though I had great opportunity, I was just like, this is what I want to do. Um, so that was, you know, uh, always stuck with me. And I sold real estate for five years, um, had an amazing career. I got into that because my mom was a top nationwide top uh, real estate agent. And she's like, well, you just quit your job. I could use some help, you know, start working for me and then go from there. So I ended up working in real estate for five years, being involved in almost $70 million in real estate transactions. Uh, and really just got burnt out. Uh, that whole time I was homebrewing, continuing my, my passion there. And, um, you know, my wife and I, when she moved to Milwaukee with me from college, we met in college. Um, we said in five years, we're moving back to the mountains. The plan was this restaurant is going to be somewhere in five years. We're going to move back to the mountains and start another arm of it there. Well, that didn't work out, but we stuck to our guns and, and we moved back to, uh, to the Aspen area. Um, we lived in Carbondale. And I reached out to my old brewing buddies, um, and one of them had become the head brewer at Aspen Brewing Company. So I said, "Hey, we're moving back to the mountains. You know, any chance um, that you need help?" And and he did. They uh, so I was able to get back to the professional side of things uh, as an assistant brewer uh, for Aspen Brewing Company. When we when I got there, we were doing about twelve hundred, maybe two thousand barrels a year. And, um, in the four and a half years I was there, we grew to almost 7,000 barrels a year. And, um, we had during that early infancy of my time there, we had just launched the barrel program. Um, that head brewer went to do his own thing. And I actually kind of decided to make the barrel program my baby and really grew up, um, our wood cellar is, uh, into something where we had a couple of brands that we were regularly making and really just fell in love with the magic of mixed culture beers, barrel fermentation, barrel aging. That's really what I, you know, wanted to do inspired by, you know, what, what side project have been doing. And, um, you know, Casey had just opened, uh, in the Valley there in Glenwood Springs. Um, I mean, so many cool, so many cool Colorado breweries and, and Washington, Oregon breweries doing awesome mixed culture stuff that I really just wanted to explore that and learn more there. Um, and that's sort of what brought us back to Milwaukee is. You know, I just uh, had a kid on the way. I just gotten a big raise living in one of the most expensive towns in Colorado. And I realized that if we wanted to, if I wanted to stay in, you know, and chase my passion in beer as a career, that um, the only way to really kind of get any sort of opportunity for ourselves was to try to do this thing ourselves, run the business the way we wanted to run, you know, put the risk out there and hopefully get the rewards. So we, that's when I started working on the business plan for 1840 and Plus a new baby on the way, having some baby. family to help support. Uh, um, I mean, that there's some real logic in that too. Oh, big time. I mean, yeah, being close to the family was was definitely not a negative. Um, so yeah, we ended up back in Milwaukee, uh, launched 1840. We started brewing in spring of 2017 and started selling beer in August of 17 with the in original intent of being very purposeful and being uh, a, a focused farmhouse brewery you know barrel fermented or barrel aged only 
And um, it's interesting how quickly that changed for us um, because, and I, and I really, you know, I, it's, it's fun to like look back and kind of tease myself, like, you know, you're going to be so intentional and you really didn't take that long to break from that. Um, and the reason was, is because our first month we had three barrel ferment, barrel fermented beers. Our next month we had four. And I was, uh, I was sort of doing the Casey model where we were only open once a month at first. And then going into my third month, I was only going to have two beers. The beers I'd planned on being ready weren't ready. And so um, I decided, hey, hazy IPAs are starting to become something on the scene uh, in Colorado before I left. And they were really sort of blowing up around that time. Uh, you know, 2016, 15 to 17 was a really big time for hazy IPAs. Um, and no one was doing them in Milwaukee. So we're like, hey, I have this stainless equipment that we just we thought we'd only use to pre-ferment and barrel age beers. But I can turn a beer in two weeks. Let's get this one out. And you know, I my wife and I love to drink IPAs. And uh, we said, why not? And at that point, it, that went so well. Um, that I'm like, okay, we can do anything. Why am I why am I pigeonholing myself? Like, I want to make all the beer. You know, I, I joke, I'm a very ADD brewer. I'm always wanting to try something I haven't done before or try a historical style or a modern take on something that we decided to, um, you know, just we can make whatever we want now. And so instead of being hyper-focused on one type of beer, we said we're going to be hyper-focused on quality. And that's that's where, where our motto comes from, drink slow beer. I'm not sure if you heard that yet. Um, it started off very literal, you know blow beer six months minimum to make our products um three months to three years is kind of you know that range of where this beers could fall and um now drink slow beer has evolved into sort of an ethos and a vibe right so i'm going to make a beer that's going to take three years to make uh, i'm going to put a lot of care and attention in the ingredients we source for that and uh, the recipe and and all, everything along the way and we thought well you know we do the same thing when i make a beer that takes two or three weeks um, and you know, we really put that same care and attention into just nailing it and having it taste how we want. And, um, also we hope that when people get our products in their hand, that they kind of slow down and enjoy the moment, uh, maybe talk about the beer with their friends, you know? And so to us, that's slow beer. It's, it's both a timeline and an ethos and a vibe. And that's how we sort of, I've carved our niche in Milwaukee. Sure. What does 1840 look like as a business now? Uh, multiple locations or, you know, production tap room? What, what, where does your, most of your focus, you know, business-wise lie? Um, you know, I wish it was more on growing our, our production, um, you know, growing into our, our capacity. But right now, so much of our focus is uh, on a new tap room. Um, we're launching a new tap room concept this fall um, in a suburb about 45 minutes from Milwaukee called West Bend. going to be multi-part uh, all day type of service. So we're going to have a coffee shop, tasting room, and restaurant component where we focus on Detroit style pizza and sous vide wings. So, um, you know, that's really taking a lot of our energy right now is just getting ready for that. I didn't want to really jump too hard into growing our distro footprint this year, knowing that, you know, this was coming. And then I'm like, oh, sorry, I got to contract all the, I got to, you know, withhold a beer back because my tap room is doing well. So, um, you know, kind of our, we started off with our Bayview location. We're adding adding West Bend, and then once West Bend's up and running, we kind of see how the flow of liquid is going to move. We're going to continue to to grow our footprint. So right now we sell beer across the entire state of Wisconsin, um, but we'd love to 
sell more beer in Wisconsin and also possibly expand into some of our neighboring states. Sure. What's the approximate volume? Uh, how much are you going to make this year? Um, we're going to be right around 700 barrels this year. It's not a okay. ton. Yeah. We've, we've got, sure. yeah, we've got the uh, capacity going to be online soon. Actually, our uh, new GND chiller um, just needs to get connected. Um, and then we're going to have the capacity to do about 2,900 barrels. Um, but it's just, you know, once one thing at a time, we're, we're bootstrapping this business and kind of doing it all on our own and really trying to grow organically and not rush. And, um, also just make sure that, you know, the liquid stays top tier. Um, but I'm super excited once West Bend's up and running and, you know, we're going to start growing into our, our capacity here. And that's going to be a whole new, um, new thing that I've actually got experience on, you know, opening a second tap room. This is a first time for me, but growing a brewery from a small volume to a large one is something I've done. I'm looking forward to that. And you found your way back into the restaurant business in Milwaukee uh, yeah. through a, through a whole different route. Yeah. Sure. I'm well, crazy. Let's, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, let's, uh, I want to, I want to talk about uh, brewing mixed fermentation beer in particular, because obviously yeah. that uh, um, that's top of mind for us. You're, uh, I don't want to weigh with its gold medal, but also uh, the Contessa Table for One Table Saison that you've sent to us for our upcoming uh, Best in Beer and Saison issue, uh, which uh, I'll spoil it now for everybody, scored a 97 with our blind panel. Um, some really cool stories there. Uh, you all are doing some excellent work in this field of mixed culture fermentation. I want to kind of uh, dive into your brewing mind and uh, try to understand how you go about doing some of the things. Before we do that, take your brewing to the next level with AccuBrew's revolutionary fermentation monitoring system, now predicting specific gravity. With AccuBrew, you'll have precise control over the fermentation process and ensure consistent high-quality results. Their cloud-based app and compact sensor work together to monitor specific gravity, fermentation activity, clarity, and temperature. AccuBrew is CIP-ready and designed to stay out of your way. Their set-it-and-forget-it solution streamlines systems and processes, confirms consistency, and helps detect problems before they ruin a batch. Join the AccuBrew community today and experience 24-7 peace of mind. Visit AccuBrew.io to learn more. Also, ProBrew is excited to announce that they are currently featuring short lead times between two and four weeks for their in-stock ProFill rotary can fillers. These can fillers run at speeds between 100 and 600 plus cans per minute while achieving precise and consistent filling volumes not achievable by most inline and mobile fillers. For more information, fill out their contact form on www.probrew.com or email contact us at probrew.com to learn exactly how they can take your operations to the next level. Probrew, brew your beer. Kyle, talk to me about uh, mixed culture fermentation. Um, yeah. Where did you all start with this? You know, obviously you mentioned your goal was to tap into, you know, some of this inspiring work that you've seen from Colorado and the West Coast and, uh, you know, Pacific Northwest, so many great producers of these. Um, as you were starting to define an 1840 approach to mixed culture beer, um, where did it start with? What were there some specific beers that you wanted to make? Um, was this culture driven? Was this fruit or ingredient driven? Um, you know, how did, how did you start building this program? And, and, you know, what were those beers that formed the kind of foundation of it? So we wanted to, I wanted to make everything because so much of my experience in mixed culture beers, um, using oak as an, as an ingredient, not just a storage vessel. Um, 
you know, was limited to just a couple of brands, the couple of brands I could convince uh, the ownership to allow me to make, right? So I had all these beers I wanted to try. <clears throat> um, and so I didn't really set out to say, I'm only going to make Saison or I'm only going to make one type of mixed culture beer. Um, but when we started, what I decided to do was start with just three types of beer. So we started with a, a large batch of um, a Saison base. Then we did a large batch um tree soured so we actually kettle soured a, a goza type base but then barrel fermented that with mixed culture um but only brett so that way like i could really dial in the acidity because um you know i was trying to in that series keep things real light um and then we also uh, started with a brown bearded guard what's super interesting about i don't want to wait is that that came out of the barrel we call the mothership and the mothership is a barrel I've had since we opened, since we first started brewing beer. We call it that because it has sort of contained so many beers over the years. Because when we first started filling those three batches, Beer to Guard, the Goza base, the Saison base, into a variety of different barrels, I put a little bit of all those works into this punchin. Uh, I should note, I, I bought the punchin for my buddy Troy. And so we figured, hey, it's got his some of his magic still living in there. Um, we're going to fill it with a little bit of all the warts from these first two batches and a little bit of all the yeast that we used in all the batches. And then as we were building out the brewery, because remember, we started brewing months before our taproom oven. Uh, anytime we'd share a cool bottle, we're dumping the dregs in there. And so we really developed a completely unique, un unduplicatable culture inside this barrel, pulling a little bit of what might have still been living in the wood, all these different cultures uh, that we were putting into our base our initial base bl um, blending stock and um it is now only made uh, i don't want to wait it was the third beer to ever come out of that punch. um we've been open you know six years now it, it was kind of you know we started all right i'm gonna i'm gonna just cast a wide net and then have this blending stock and we'll go from there and then we just continued to evolve so i've continued to work in more large format barrels um and different types of oak um I don't want to wait was our sort of period of time. We were experimenting with different grains to see how they fed the yeast and bacteria over time. So this was a spelt saison. So we've done spelt, rye, amber saison, you know. And then as far as um, yeast goes, um, I've worked a ton with Nick at the East Bay. Uh, he's from this area and, you know, we've gotten along. He's been a great resource. And I like to just try some of the interesting cultures that he has. Um, his house sour blend was probably one of my favorite early Saison blends. I found that um, it really puts off a lot of cool acidity with a, but it's balanced and um, you know, great funk characters. Also, everything is just about that blend, at least in the way that we've utilized it, it's been very balanced. Um, so yeah, we started sort of you know all over and have continued to be all over. And then you 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 know the thing about barrel aging that I love barrel fermentation is that. You know, these sort of become, this sounds super cliche, you know, paints on your palate. And then how you recompose them is really where the artistry of, of blending beer comes back. And uh, that's something that I am really passionate about because it's fun to go through that process. You know, taste these beers when they're young, taste them when they're mature, put them back together and maybe say, hey, I want to add, you know, different spices or hops or fruit to this beer. So that whole process is what, what I'd like to focus on really like slow beers. Think about it all the way along, taste it all the way along and just roll with it. 
It's interesting that you are using basically, you know, three different uh, kind of, you know, fermentation processes there, um, whether that's, you know, purchased pitches, um, you know, uh, ferment or pre-acidified, you know, fermented beer that's then aged on bread or then using this, you know, kind of ongoing culture that you maintain and using all three of those kinds of fermentation approaches to, you know, to then build more stock that you can blend on. It sounds to me also like you're using a lot of smaller barrels, not fooders, um, and, and then maybe punchins in order to kind of produce this kind of, you know, diversity that you then pull from. Yeah, I've, I've really focused more on small barrels early on um, because I was, I was really like, I just want to have a variety of stock to blend from. And now as we've gotten a little bit more uh, intentional with some projects, like, um, we're not necessarily looking at it as a blending thing is when we've gotten into a lot of the punch and aging, it's nice to be able to put, you know, four or five barrels of beer in a one, one vessel and have it be consistent. If you sort of have an intention to, uh, outcome that you're looking for. Um, and with the mothership, we've, we've not really had an intention outcome ever. This particular beer, I was like, all right, this beer is mature. It happens to be summer, you know, let's go get some Montmorency cherries. And so we. Uh, made some connections up in Door County and um, were able to get these just amazing Door County cherries uh, that we were, you know, just super inspired by the flavor of those. I'm like, man, if the beer tastes anything like this, and sure enough, they added a ton of color, ton of flavor, um, you know, insane pie cherry characteristics. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to be able to have access to those ingredients and have a, a product say, like, I'm ready for fruit. And then it's like, well, what fruit is ready? Let's go out and get it. And, um, you know, that was, sure, sure. that's what I love is like the beer tells you what it needs. And it's a beautiful beer. I'm, I'm drinking some now and, um, I'm definitely, I'm halfway through a bottle just through this conversation. Um, very easy to drink, you know, just, uh, the acidity is nicely balanced. Um, I'm curious about something you said earlier about how, uh, grains and, and grist additions have impacted the way that the, the cultures function. Talk to me a little bit about that. This is a, this is a spelt base in this one, you know, how have you found that uh, in your experiments using different grains in these bases, you know, how has that impacted, uh, you know, not not just the fermentation, but, you know, say finished mouthfeel, you know, and some of the texture, because, you know, especially, you know, when you're talking about acidity and, you know, kind of has some uh, effects of, of uh, um, reducing some of the, the kind of weight within it, you know, Brett of course can work on, uh, some of the stuff that otherwise might help, pr- you know, produce body in a beer, you know, so you're trying to combat that. Talk to me about how you, you know, what you have found through some of those experiments with, uh, with grain and mixed culture beers. Yeah. We found that if we can, um, sprinkle in higher protein grains that, uh, they tend to allow the Brett to do work over longer periods of time. Um, so like the more kind of complicated grists or more higher protein grists that we put together, they tend to age slower where like, we're sort of like unimpressed with them early on. Uh, they taste good, but you know, and then over time they, they tend to develop more interesting flavors. Um, I mean, it's kind of the basic lambic strategy, right? You use right. unmalted wheat because, you know, it's going to be the hardest thing for, you know, these cultures to, to ultimately digest, you know, and it's going to give you the, the longest, slowest fermentation there. You know, I assume you're using unmalted, uh, you know, in some of these and then how long, you know, like, like how, what is a sprinkle, you know, yeah, what so, kind of quantities uh, are you starting to build in these? Well, we've used, um, 
you know, we've used, we use raw wheat in a lot for sure. Um, I've, I've definitely messed around with un, unmalted grains. Um, we're usually in the 25 to 30% max, um, for the grains we're trying to test. So it'll be some sort of a base. Grain. That is, w- that is way more than a sprinkle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess I did say sprinkle. So, um, yeah. Now we, if we're really trying to test it, you know, I want to push yeah, it, I want to yeah. push it up there. Um, some of our beers, you know, it's Pilsner malt and, um, you know, a little bit of Munich or a little bit of, um, dextrin type malt and that's it. Um, but we're going for a quicker turn on that. Um, you know, and we're not, it's just, it's just sort of different. So, uh, we've been messing around with, yeah, anywhere between 10 and 20% of that specialty mix. And those beers tend to age slower and develop slower, but they maintain more body over time. Um, you know, we also mess around with our hopping rates. It's like there's tons of bacteria in in this culture and we want that to show up, but I don't want to make an enamel melting product. Um, so then it's like, how many IBUs can we put in there to allow it to happen over time, but not, not come to the gate first. You know, uh, we sort of want the, uh, the acidity to, to, uh, show up last. Right. So that's another thing that we've been messing with the hopping rates, you know, usually around like 7%, uh, excuse me, seven IBUs, um, has been pretty good in like inhibiting that early growth, but still allowing it to happen. So yeah, we, for we now. we're just, for, for now. now. Well, that's the Until thing. It, yeah. In the mothership, the next beer after I don't want to wait that we, the next work we put in there, um, the, the genetic drift was strong towards the bacteria. I mean, that one went sour quick. It was in the barrel for, I want to say it was six or seven months before I started calling for fruit. I said, this needs fruit. Uh, it was peach season. We got, we actually, um, just, so whenever we would have packaged, I don't want to wait. You got the bottle. It'll probably say it on the description. Uh, one sixteen twenty three. Okay. So that was, so, um, that was bottled uh, early 23. So actually by this summer, we, we took that beer out and put it on cherries and then we put a highly hopped, but we actually cleaned, uh, rinsed out the barrel with the, um, with hot water and um, a, a little bit of acid. And we um, sort of just try to get all the, the buildup of, of years worth of Solera um, method, methodology out of there. And then we put a highly hopped beer in there to try to take any of the bacteria that might be dominating the culture in the wood, um, sort of tame that a little bit and allow us to continue to use the barrel. Highly hopped, you know, so what, something in like the 20-ish range or? Uh, yeah, this one was, um, this one was 25, I believe, 24, 25. Okay. Um, and it was, a, yeah, another tape, type of table beer that we made, but just um, focused on hops. Uh, so it's a little bit more, more rigorous, I guess you'd call it. Um, yeah. Is what we put in there. So excited to see how that one ages. We did try it. Um, and the Brett is developing and the, the acidity has not come up at all. Uh, it just stayed stayed basically stable so um happy to see that our you know our plan is working you haven't ruined ru- haven't ruined it yet yes i want to keep this barrel <laughs> going it's, it's the only one we've ever used this much a lot of times but we've done some solera stuff in other barrels or we're really happy with the flavors we're getting out but a lot of times we're we're using those once maybe the beer's in there for 12 to 18 months and we're getting rid of the barrel and and on to something when you when you uh, you know we're going through that kind of barrel refresh process, um, I, I mean maybe we don't call it that. Maybe we call it just a, a you know, I don't even cleaning it doesn't sound right. I need a, a great term for this. Yeah, that sounds uh, you know romantic recharging. Maybe maybe we call it recharging. I like that. Um, yeah, 
and you go, you know, go through that process. Obviously, there's a this huge, like, scary risk because you have something that's produced something that's beautiful and award winning. You don't want to screw that up. And then when you put, you know, like you put new beer in it, like, there's always that question of will it ferment? You know? Yeah. Like, is it going to work? What did you do to mitigate your risk on that? So in this case, we did not put fresh wort in. We put a finished beer. So oh, okay. Yep. Okay. So this was a, a similar to Contessa that you have. Um, this yeah. was a um, sack Brett stainless ferment that we hopped, you know, like I said, a little bit higher and um, ended up, once that was done, packaging some of it and transferring the rest into the punch. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, so we went, if I was going in there with straight um, words, I I would probably would have put a fresh pitch. Yeah. When you... You know, when you're approaching this, obviously with something like I don't want to wait, you, you were brewing it. You didn't know that it was eventually going to become a fruited beer. Right. You know, you're you're throwing this into a barrel with the idea that it's going to become a beer and you will make some creative decisions around it when that time comes. If it tastes in a way that you want to release that as its own standalone beer, you do. If you feel like well, this could really be a nice base you know, for something else, talk to me about that creative decision-making process for you and how you go about doing that. And then how you start thinking about like, oh, well, maybe some of this other barrel that I have is going to be a nice, you know, counterpoint foil to what I'm getting here. Then we add, ingre- like, talk, talk to me a little bit about your creative process around that. Yeah, it really just comes down to getting to know what's in your barrel. It's, um, it's creating a blending or a, a tasting schedule that allows you to kind of keep mental tabs, we keep notes. Um, and that, that way, you know, we, we sort of know what we've got, we've got, oh, this stock over here is a little bit more acidic. Um, this is a little bit more funk forward, um, you know, or this one has a, a better body, you know, sometimes just uh, barrels get thin. So we've got to pay attention to the ones that have that body. Um, and then, you know, you pull the components in that you think that you need. In this case, it was like, this beer just tastes super rounded, very balanced, um, it's dry, but it still has body. It has acidity, but it's not overpowering. You know, it's not a horse blanket by any means, but there's definitely an earthiness and a funk to it. And so it just, it was like, this is going to be a really cool blank canvas, a highlight that's like, it's like all, all of the things I love in mixed culture beer. Um, and like, this is going to take fruit really, really well. You know, we just, we just knew that that was something that like, it could just take it up another level if we got some high quality fruit. So we fruited this uh, at about, it was almost four and a half pounds per gallon of, uh, and we did get them pitted. Um, I, we fortunately don't do thankfully, fortunately, and unfortunately, you know, don't have any sort of equipment like that to do it ourselves, but we did get them pitted in the field and then brought, brought them down, uh, before we ended the beer, um, into you know, the finished beer into the planning thing. Let's talk a little bit about that. So then you, you, you know, what would you get them from a farmer yep. pitted, um, any other processing before you added them into beer, you know, you're, you're not pureeing them, you're not freezing them, you know, what is, what does that process look like? And then, you know, I mean, how are you maximizing, you know, contact between the, the beer on there? Are there some, you know, temperature controls in order to, you know, you want to keep the beer fresh and lively and not let it just get, you know, um, you know, oversaturated, uh, you know, how, how do you manage that kind of fruit addition process in this? In this particular case, it came down, we, you know, we were looking at 
our tank schedule and how long we had and when the beer was ready and those types of things. And so a lot of, a lot of times our schedule will dictate how we treat fruit. Um, and so sometimes, you know, we, we have done, so we always purge our blending tank with the fruit in it because I am putting finished beer in there and I know there's going to be another fermentation, but I'm not necessarily trying to make that super aerobic. Um, so we will always have sort of a mini carbonic maceration that sort of happens because we'll, we'll purge that tank. Um, well, it get, just has the fruit in it. Well, it just has the fruit in it. Yep. Yeah. So we have to have the door open and we're putting buckets of fruit in there. Um, and then we purge it and test our, um, tank levels until we're below 1% oxygen, like we would any other time, uh, that we're transferring a clean beer. And then we'll put the, the finished beer on it. Um, in this case, we actually did freeze the cherries, um, because I wanted to, I did, you know, the whole idea of pre-maceration is something I like to mess around with. And, um, we didn't want to immerse in blend. We wanted, you know, um, that the idea of second use fruit was sort of bouncing around in our heads and preserving the fruit as much as possible to have it be something that, um, we might be able to use again was, was going through our minds. So we're like, rather than blend or create a puree, uh, or strictly, you know, do some sort of a quick carbonic maceration, let's do, let's freeze them and, you know, kind of modify the cell walls that way. And then we let them thaw, put them in the tank, did our, you know, mini uh, purge started there, and then we transferred the beer on it. So a different step. How long do they sit in the purge before you put beer on them? Uh, this was overnight. You mentioned, your, you mentioned a mini carbonic mass. Yeah, mini, you know? because it was just yeah. overnight in this case. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, a real yeah. one would take, uh, take days. Right. So, sure. um, yeah, we just kind of like let them sit in there, but they were already, they were already frozen. The process already started. And um, we don't have, the ability to do any sort of punch down um every once in a while we'll do a gas purge a gas bubble through the bottom to try yeah. to stir up everything and really get in case we do have a, a fruit cap is to, to try to get that broken up as much as we can um but at that high fruiting rate four and a half pounds per gallon you know you're, you're getting plenty of fruit that is going to sink and is going to become um integrated with the beer you know right away like i don't think we're probably sitting on a massive cap uh the way that we the way that we do this what do you what, what kind of temperature and time you know uh plays a part in this kind of fruit maceration for y'all we let it we let it do natural i put in an unjacketed stainless steel bright tank hmm. and um because you know the beer's been sitting at room temperature obviously there's going to go undergo another fermentation of the sugars and the fruit um right but i just I didn't worry about that when I fermented it in the oak the first time. So I'm, I'm not really worried about it the second time. Um, and usually, you know, the fermentations are, are strong, but they're not as vigorous as fresh wort in a tank. Um, so I don't know that we were getting excessively hot in there. Yeah. How much, uh, you know, how, how long did that additional fermentation take? And then how much, how long do you then let it condition after that on the fruit itself? Yeah. So we let that, the whole process finish off in that tank until we have a stable gravity for at least 60 days. Um, and in this case, it took us about six months uh, on the on the cherries to both get the level of fruit color and flavor that we were looking for and then have 60 days of stable gravity. Because, you know, I'm who knows what else might have come along on the fruit. Um, you know, what, what yeast decides to wake up and really rip on sure. the cherries. And we want to make sure that in a packaging a stable product because then we do bottle condition as well and uh usually bottle condition to about 
two, eight to three volumes. So you don't want to have a, an oops on that and end up, um, you know, packaging a beer at three volumes and, and then it, you know, ends up closer to four because the, the beer wasn't stable. So we give it that 60 days and, um, use a couple of fruit filters to transfer it to another bright tank or bottle conditioning packaging. So six months total in stainless until the thing is done then. In this, in this particular case, yeah, it was six months on the cherries. That's uh, crazy, Kyle. It's a long time sitting in a tank for one beer. It is. Drink slow beer, you know? Um, and then, you know, and then the next round was quicker. I don't I don't know. Uh, we actually didn't discuss this. Discuss this. So we've been messing around with second maceration, and we decided to do it because the there was so much color and flavor from this beer that we knew that those cherries probably still had some life in them. And so then we took a stainless mixed culture. So um, sack Brett stainless fermented table beer that we had aged in barrels and then put that on these cherries for a second use. That beer became Mariah karaoke, uh, another sort of Brett Saison has like a very light rosé color and this cool pie cherry flavor, but it's in the background, the, the oak and the Britannomyces really lead the flavor uh, profile there. And interestingly enough, that beer won a gold medal at the U.S. Open Beer Championship this summer. So two beers, one batch of cherries, two gold medals in 2023. Uh, it's kind of kind of wild. Uh, we are very happy with our fruit grower. Account. I will go on record as saying I love this trend of second-use fruit, and I think that it's such a, you know, while you, I completely understand the commercial concerns of selling a beer that has fruit and, you know, when it, when you have a fruit advertised on a label, consumers want to taste that. They right. want that intense experience. Um, they want to experience the thing that you're telling them that they're going to experience. And, you know, there is no denying that the color like this is just gorgeous and engaging. I mean, it just kind of pulls you in. Right. No, no doubt about that. Um, but in terms of, you know, coming at it from a beer perspective for someone like me, I think that idea of finding ways to knock down some of that fruit character and integrate it into the overall beer makes for a really compelling beer. Um, you know, and so it's kind of amazing and cool that, uh, you found ways to do both of those things, you know, hit both of those consumption modes, um, and make all of these different kinds of consumers happy with, with different kinds of products off of the same expensive thing that you're sourcing from farmers and, uh, paying out the nose for if you, especially if you're doing, you know, four and a half pounds, uh, you know, per barrel kind of, uh, per gallon maceration per gallon. Yeah. Oh God. It was a ton of fruit. (laughs) Yeah. That was cool. So it is from a cost standpoint to be able to use that again. And then, like you said, it's appeal to different customers because some people are only going to want that ruby color of the Creek inspired beer that I don't want to wait is. They really want to be slapped in the face with cherry. And that's cool because those beers are phenomenal. Um, but to show people that, wow, we can still get a pie cherry flavor in here, but it falls into the background and has more of like a rosé color um, is kind of fun for us. We're actually, we're talking about trying it with other fruits. Um you know, as we go along, it's just the, the question is, is what's going to be the right one? You know, uh, We've got some peaches in uh, in that same tank right now, and I, I don't know if they'll be able to, to stand up to getting a second round, you know? Yeah. The other thing I love watching happen in, in beer this year, you know, maybe the last 18 months total, is brewers packaging in perfectly clear bottles that show off the color of these things and going right at the natural wine market and saying, Hey, you can make, you make these 
spunky fruit forward things, you know, with these rosé or bright characters, like, hey, we can do that too. Right. Um, and they present so well in this kind of, uh, you know, consumer environment. When you see someone drinking someone like something like that, especially like, you know, at a bar or restaurant, you're naturally intrigued in the same way that, uh, you know, when I see a, you know, a, a golden or a rosé natural wine and someone else is drinking that in this clear bottle. It's like, I want to, I want to know what that is. And I want to try some of that. It just, there's just something interesting and all, you know, and almost uh, viral, you know, in the experience of it when you're out and about and seeing other people do that. And so I think, you know, watching these trends happen and watching brewers find ways to make beers that can live and, and thrive in that kind of, you know, clear bottle environment without, uh, you know, uh, skunking and turning into terrible beers like this is all fascinating and i love i love watching the creativity of craft brewers pushing into some of these kinds of ca- uh, categories and seeing how that goes nonetheless um let's talk about uh you know contessa table for one your your uh, table stays on quickly before we we finish up here yeah obviously uh you know more no fruit in this one this one was definitely uh you know a a, you know, a small light beer where the fermentation character is the you know the primary focus of yep. it um and there aren't a lot of places to hide when you're going at that kind of small beer you know in this kind of way um talk to me about how you found uh, you know ways to make it um uh, clean interesting you know but so kind of cohesive as a uh, as a table saison for sure um so table beers are something that we've been really playing around with a lot lately uh, and that is thanks to uh, our new head brewer. He's been with us. He's been head brewer for just over a year. He's been with us since 2020, um, Casey Seymour. And he was actually um, a huge fan of ours and a customer back when we first opened. I actually have a picture of him waiting in a line around the block uh, for one of our releases from um, 2017 and has ended up you know, working for us now and, and is in the head brewer position. And what's been cool about having him uh, on the team is he sort of reinvigorated my focus and my passion for making sure that we're putting on a lot of cool mixed culture uh, and sour wild ales, you know, just things that are really back to our, our ethos, our roots. You know, we do all of the beers. We literally make something like dark coffee, sour fruity all the time. Um, but it's really kind of he reinvigorated my my desire to just focus on making sure we always have a healthy variety of um, those types of beers and table beers was something he wanted to mess around with. So you hit it on the head. Like, how do you take a small beer and give it enough fermentation character to taste like a big beer? And um, so we picked a Saison strain that we had had uh, liked before and um, chatted with Nick a little bit about the direction we wanted the Britannomyces character to be. You know, like we wanted it to be present. Um, and absolutely, and give the beer some of that extra depth, but also not just be way too funky uh, because it's a little beer. You know, we wanted to make sure it was it maintained that balance. Uh, and so, yeah, we really started playing around with that. Um, our hopping rates, probably in like that twenty to thirty range, has given uh, a good amount of body without too much bitterness or um, hop like focus to really distract from the little beer. We wanted it to be about the the fermentation characteristic and so as we have done a couple of these um you know it's been fun to again focus on fermentation and and really that comes down to just giving it time in the tank we do our our we let our bread even though it's, it's pretty much john fermenting um we let those mixed 
Brett Stack beers sitting seamless for at least five weeks um, mm. before, before bottle conditioning. Um, give it just a little bit more opportunity to develop before it gets, you know, taken to the bottle. Because who knows? Like once we decided conditioning is over, it could be a mu- two weeks, could be six months, and we passed on a consumer, they might fill it down right away and keep it cold forever, right? So uh, if we're going to make a stainless-only beer, we want to at least give it a little bit of opportunity to start to develop some bread, um, make it, you know, make that beer a little bit more full and rounded. Uh, what are, uh, when you say, you know, you, you are selecting bread strains to produce a flavor that's, you know, that's hitting where you want to go, I'm curious about that because certainly, you know, for me, and, and I, I, I'm excited to do this episode I, I make jokes here and there about breweries that, that you know, uh, focus on mixed culture fermentation um, because it's obviously not the best commercial idea for a brewery. No. But I'm so glad that these beers exist and the breweries make these beers. They are such beautiful expressions of, of brewing and the art of brewing, and they need to exist and they should exist. And I'm glad that you found a way to keep these kinds of things existing, you know, within a context of you know, some other beers that also, you know, pay the bills for those things. So I just want to get that out of the way right now (laughs) for all of my, my snarky comments about that kind of thing. I absolutely, you know, I'm a diehard fan of this style of beer. I'm so glad that it exists. Um, you know, but one of the things over the the last few weeks of tasting, uh, all of these beers for our Saison issue was really, you know, capturing this kind of breadth that comes in this world of Brett. Um, a lot more woody character, you know, this year than I've noticed that is primarily, you know, like a lot of that is Brett driven. Um, you know, a lot of the citrus character that we're seeing, you know, can be Brett driven. And there are definitely these wide, vastly different kinds of approaches to Brettanomyces in this kind of uh, Brett fermentation that uh, that can produce very, 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 very different results. You know, from your discussions and from some of your brewing, you know, how do you, you know, have you put a finger on some of the things that are producing the flavors you want, given the ingredients that you have and the way that you go about fermenting? Are there some that you, you know, say maybe don't give you the exact thing that you're looking for out of that? You know, how do you make some of these decisions? Where have you landed on some of these Brett decisions? Having a good relationship with um, Nick at East Bay has been great for us because sometimes, you know, you read, um, and I don't buy all my Brett from him, but a lot of it. Um, sometimes you read a description of a Britannomyces strain, it's like reading a description of a new hop. Uh, you know, it's all rose-colored glasses. It sounds beautiful. It's good. This is going to be the most amazing yeast I've ever used, amazing hop I've ever used. We saw the flavors exactly how we want, and sometimes you realize it, it doesn't. And so to lean on someone in the lab is actually testing these on a pilot scale and propagating this yeast, he's got a ton more experience. So we can actually ask like very specific questions, like in your experience, does this yeast result in this type of flavor? Um, how does it co-ferment with sack? You know, those kinds of questions that we can actually get some answers to ahead of time means that we've got to do a lot less guessing based on either description or trying to find commercial examples with that particular brain. Um, and that's worked out pretty well for us. Um, you know, also, we, we we try to kind of restrain the temperature a little too and really let the sack strain take the brunt of the early fermentation. Um, and I find that helps keep the Britannomyces in check. But, you know, we're not ending up with these crazy, just Brett forward beers. There, there's, there's a variety of flavors that are achieved because we're, you know, we're fermenting and we'll knock out like 70 uh, on these particular table beers, let it free rise to 78. Like we're not getting that hot. 
but at that temperature range, the Thysanis just rips and um, creates all those cool Belgian esters that we're looking for. And then the bread sort of just kind of comes in and fills in the gaps later. And that's been working really well for us. That's where we found we get these these balanced beers. And then they, they develop amazing over time. You know, you, you, we bottle condition. And so um, six, eight months later, when, you know, they've really had some time is when we find a lot of them really hit their stride. They, they drink incredible. So, you know, it's, it's definitely the fun part of the journey for us is to be able to see where they end up. But, you know, we do our best early on to work with the lab and then also kind of restrain the Britannomyces activity to get the balance that we're looking for. That makes sense. And I think uh, it's time to, uh, you know, for us to pull this part of this GABF episode to a close. Um, Kyle, if people want to learn more about 1840 and the beers that you make, mixed culture and not mixed culture, um, where can they learn more about you all? Yeah, so come visit us in Milwaukee. You know, that's the best thing to do is come drink our beers. I, I'm going to be there later this week. Yeah. Maybe I, w- I will see how the week works yeah, out. Yeah, I've got a beer for you. <laughs> uh, i got a beer uh, we'll share. So, um, yeah, obviously come visit us. If you're not in the Milwaukee area, though, you can find us on the internet, hg40brewing.com. Uh, we're on all the socials. So, yeah, come find us. Come share a beer. Drink slow beer. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, well, up next, we're going to talk to uh, Joel Stickrod and Spencer Longhurst from Barique. Uh, before we do that, oh, you like wildly aromatic IPAs and tropical lagers? Good thing Omega designed thialized yeast for just that reason. Thialized yeast are a new tool for brewers to bring intense guava and passion fruit aromas out of your malt and hops. And wait, there's more. Omega Yeast makes yeast to order with a consistent one-week lead time, ensuring peak freshness and reliability. Also, sustainability doesn't have to cost you more. Try Robert's Polypros, multi-pack can handles designed for sustainability and cost savings. Grip pack rings are biodegradable and average $0.05 cents per unit. Craft pack carriers are recyclable and designed with 30% less plastic. Plus, you can save up to 25% on costs. Enjoy easy application with inline applicators and 24-7 support. It's easy to go green with these multi-pack handles. Visit go.robertspolypro.com slash cbbpod to request free samples and start saving today. And ABS Commercial has been a full-service brewery outfitter for over 10 years. They are proud to offer brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts to brewers across the country, as well as equipment for distilling, cider making, wine making, and more. They know the ins and outs of the brewing and installation process and can design the perfect setup for you, whether you're just starting out or looking to expand. Contact them today at sales at abs-commercial.com to discuss your customized brewery needs. ABS Commercial, we are brewers. Next up on this GABF Gold episode, uh, joining me from Nashville to talk about Wet Hop Strata, their gold winner in wood and barrel-aged sour beer, are Joel Stickrod and Spencer Longhurst of Barik. Welcome to the podcast, Joel and Spencer. Thanks for having us, Jamie. So uh, we uh, at, at GABF uh, hit the uh, uh, tiki party at uh, Bierstadt uh, afterwards and had some uh, Spencer and I met and some nice conversations about brewing and uh, got me thinking that uh, this whole episode on GABF gold around uh, uh, mixed culture beer might make sense. I think we tentatively discussed talking about this, but I, I have to admit I had a lot of beer and tiki drinks that night. So to kind of go back into my memory, like we did talk about this, right? Yeah. Anyway. Those, um, those daiquiris that Jeff makes are pretty, pretty potent. 
It's uh, it's my new favorite part of GABF. Uh, I will Same. never never miss it again. Uh, anyway, thanks for joining me. I w- we want to talk about this, uh, you know, about your approach to, to mixed culture beer. You all have been sending us beer at the magazine. Obviously, I've been actually drinking over the last few weeks quite a few of the beers that you have sent to us for our saison and best in beer issue that's coming up now. So I feel more familiar with your beer than than I ever have. Um, Joel, why don't you talk to us about the history of Barrique? Uh, you know, what uh, what led you to launch the brewery, and then uh, how did you decide on a focus for Barrique? Absolutely. Um, so we started in 2017 um, in Barrique, and the approach at the time was definitely all old world, um, wild fermentation, open fermented in wine barrels. Um, I'd been working for a different brewery for a couple of years, making a little bit of sour beer, and uh, kind of knew that nobody else would let me open ferment mixed culture beer in their facility. And the only way to do it was to kind of start it myself. Um, so started very small, started with like 50 barrels, so you kind of let it grow every year. Um, it wasn't until the third year that Spencer, our head brewer, came on board, and it was one year before he was actually employed. We were contracting more down to the facility he was using. Uh, fast forward a year later, we ended up taking over that facility. Spencer stayed with the building and became our first employee and has been with us ever since. Um, but definitely the approach was Tennessee ingredients, Tennessee grown grain, Tennessee grown fruit, open fermented wine barrels, long maturation. Why, uh, why such a focus on open fermentation? I mean, that seems that's like how, a, I, that's a big hill to go die yeah. on right there. <laughs> uh, it's it's a very hard way to make beer. Kind of everything we do at Barrique is a very hard way to make beer from our mixed culture program, even to our, our clean pure culture program. Our lager beer is still made in wine barrels. Um, open fermented is how I was doing it at home in my basement. Uh, once I started brewing sour beer, I kind of went off the deep end and started open fermenting in a small 15-gallon barrel and had one to age and then added another one to age. And before you knew it, there was a dozen 15 gallon barrels in my basement that were all open fermented. Um, but really the, the beers that I was making, the mixed culture stuff at the other facility that I was working at weren't the same as what I was able to create at home. And I, I kind of knew that that was one of the special touches that I wanted to put on on our brand. Yeah. What's not the same mean? Um, it wasn't as deep. It wasn't as complex. Hmm. It, it was more kind of monotone. Um, and there was a lot of differences in the process too. It was bigger commercial grain instead of small craft grain. It was lamb grade cultures instead of our wild culture coming out of my basement. Uh, originally the first 50 casks were inoculated from barrels that came out of my basement and we've kept that culture alive ever since. Um, so we take barrels, we stand them up on end, like standard barriques, wine barrels, stand them up on end. We run about a dozen at a time. There was one year we were running like 20 in like the the 2019 no it's 2021 winter we were running two batches a week and 20 open barrels and we'll put three or four batches through them and then put the head back on close them swell them back up and then use them for maturation casks after that it's you know there's it is an interesting one with all the breweries that i've talked to and seen you know some of the best mixed culture brewers you know that that i have talked to whether it's scratch in illinois um, even Troy Casey at Casey yep. uh, had been you know, doing a lot of open top fermentation. Um, that does seem to be a kind of somewhat common theme there amongst them that, uh, you know, do you, do you think that it is 
the culture itself, uh, obviously open fermentation, no head pressure, you know, the history of Saison uh, yeast in general, whether it's uh, isolated Saison culture or mixed culture is such that they tend to like to perform um, and, and do better work uh, without that kind of head pressure. Um, you know, but for you, you know, is there some kind of symbiosis between the culture that you have developed and that method of, of fermentation? I, I like that method in, in our case because it's essentially 10 or 12 small fermentations. You know, it, it's each one's about a barrel and a half. And we've got a 20 barrel brew house. We can also brew 10 barrel batches on it. Um, everything at this point goes through our cool ship before the open fermentation. But it's really, it's brew, brewing and blending because we focus on blending from the very get go. So it stays in those open fermenters for five or six days and then gets blended out of them. And there's, 10 different beers coming out of these open top casks and kind of the name of our game is all about diversity within our stacks and and create as many different colors or flavors to blend with later on um so it works pretty well for us because it's a whole bunch of small fermentations um especially starting out it was an an economical move as well stainless is expensive and barrels are cheap so it was a, a economical move of logistical where to ferment the beer and speaking of logistics, the logistics of running, you know, 20 different open top fermentations in wooden vessels, transferring wort into them, transferring you know, fermented beer out of them uh, has to pose some fun challenges for you. And uh, our, all of our mixed culture beers obviously only made in the wintertime. It's, it's a very seasonal approach to making beer. Okay. Um, so our kind of November through April is kind of our, our window hmm. and- we work pretty long hours, November through April. Um, at this point, it's basically one batch a week. We kind of get it on there, and we'll probably do 200 BBL or so. Interesting, and uh, you know, I mean, I think we all know the you know the lambic uh, justification for that. But you find that it's the same for you in Nashville that uh, you know the warmer weather and open top fermentation don't make for a nice combination. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure I mean, you've tried you it. What is with... a what's a warm open top fermentation? Warm season. Yeah. How does that differ from cold season? Well, the number one thing is fruit flies. Oh, okay. And then beyond that, I think we see a little bit too much like extra production, phenol production. That we're kind of you know we want a little bit of that, but not the super hot ninety degree ferments. Uh, that makes sense. Interesting. So let's talk about like walk me through um, you know the kind of the design process. Like you mentioned, um, you're doing a lot of you're trying to build blending stock because you know it's not these beers are not necessarily all single stream beers that start with the recipe and then the end of the beer in the bottle is the same recipe that you brewed at least for the the mixed culture side of the brewery. Um, you know wh- how do you you know but at the same time like building a bunch of different recipes means. You know that uh, you're moving a lot of variables at the same time. Um, how do you, you know, control for that? How do you generally like start a recipe like wet hop strata, and you know start, uh, you know, build a, a you know a, a basic recipe for that from uh, grain to water um, and so forth. There's kind of two different approaches to that, or kind of two different answers to that. One is is the wort stream, and that's where all the obviously everything starts. Um, we take a look at what we have in our cellar, go through, taste all the barrels. At this point, we've got about 500 aging casks. Um, and we kind of take a overall that's a consensus lot. of what that's we a have. That's a lot yeah, of mixed culture beer. Um, oh, man. But we'll take a consensus of what we have and, and kind of determine, do we need some more 
just general sour beer? Do we need some more funky beer? Do we need some more Saison Estuary beer? Do we need some bright lemon citrusy beer? And then we kind of, from the get-go of the wort stream, break down what we need to brew for the year. So we don't so, necessarily so you have brew the mental same. buckets like that, mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, that you have those four categories that you try to kind of generally think about, uh, base beers in. Yeah. And really kind of age tops is another category that when we start brewing with those, that's, it gives a whole nother layer of depth sure. and complexity. And we want to make sure we have enough of that in our cellar as well. Um, over the years, and especially now having Spencer as part of the team, um, we've changed our process quite a bit on the hot side. Um, and a lot of that is combating acidity and some of those decisions, you don't know the, the outcome for two years. Like our, our average age is like between two and three years. It's really easier to talk about by summers. Um, most of our beer goes through two summers. It goes through one summer with nothing. And then the second part of the process of how we develop the recipe or what the finished beer is really comes on that second summer when we start adding the adjuncts, if you will, or the, the fresh fruit or hops. Um, so it's always beer that's aged through a summer. That's where it gets sour. It's when it gets complexed. A lot of times it's blended at the end of that first summer. So blended when it goes into barrels before a summer, blended after a summer, blended on the fruit, blended off a of fruit, blended again before the bottling tank. You know, so blended many times throughout his life and we're able to kind of build the flavor profiles we're looking for in the final outcome that way. Um, and we use an ingredient that we can get our hands on that as much as we can grow in Tennessee. Uh, Fruit-wise, the only one that's not grown in Tennessee is cherries. Uh, we have to ship those in from Michigan. They don't, don't grow down here. Um, same thing, wet hops don't particularly grow very well in Tennessee. So like with this beer, the Obstrato, we've partnered with Crosby. They're great at getting us wet hops overnighted the day after they're picked and um, send them to us. So we've been using the Crosby hops for, oh goodness, four years now at least. Mm-hmm. And Very cool. A whole bunch of different varieties that we get from them. Basically, anything that they'll ship us in the wet form, we've tried. Right. Let's talk about some of the those uh, you know base recipes. You mentioned you'll use any ingredients you can get a hand on, but you know Tennessee grain is a super important piece to that. Um, how how does that figure into these recipes that you brew? Hundred percent Tennessee grain. How do you source uh, you know the grains? that build out these recipes. Obviously, if you're building mixed culture beer, you're trying to, you know, create a, you know, wart that uh, is going to be harder to ferment so that these cultures can work over this kind of time that you're giving it. Um, talk to me about your your process of designing, um, you know, those recipes so that they're going to, you know, perform within this kind of mixed culture environment. Yeah, we, we can get like Tennessee malted barley, like Pilsner malt or two row from two or three different sources now. Um, from local maltsters around us, uh, Riverbend and Carolina Malt also are the, the main ones that we use. Um, and then we actually use uh, between forty and sixty percent unmalted, like raw Tennessee ground wheat, and we get that straight from a local farmer. So yeah, most of the recipes are at least forty percent to sixty percent un- unmalted yeah. wheat. Okay. Yeah, we have a couple like petite saisons that we're really trying to boost the body up on like right. present and stuff so those, those get about 60 percent unmalted wheat and then 40 uh, percent tennessee two row or pilsner malt it has to be a fun challenge in the brew house itself yeah definitely uh lots of rice hulls yeah <laughs> and uh like joel said earlier we're fortunate that our brew house can handle 10 barrel batches and that's a 20 barrel system so when you're doing like an 11 play-doh 
10 barrel batch in a 20 barrel system the grain bed is you know maybe less than 18 inches thick so we actually don't see too much loudering issues with it um less than you'd expect actually sure that makes sense um you know are there you know and so wheat becomes the the primary non-barley grain that you use for these just because it's so readily available in tennessee it's so readily available it's you know it's coming to us raw completely unmalted or modified so it's relatively inexpensive it hasn't been adjusted in any way yeah and so that's the that's the bulk of like most of our blonde bases we do have to get some non-tennessee malt for things like flanders and nude brin they're just not doing any roasting or or um, caramelized caramelized malt in tennessee yet unfortunately sure sure now is there any difference uh you know between say the saison base and you know these bases that are going into um you know maybe even high higher acidity beers that are you know more or potentially into those yeah we're, we're mostly working with ibus to control the acidity in our culture um, okay. so like joel said we've kind of we've been gradually stepping up with each brewing season our our ibu threshold to get the acid level that we want um so i think you know the first year that i was making war for Barik, i think most of the beers were like 15 to 20 ibus and everything this year was over 30 ibus really ordering on 40 on some of the recipes yeah the culture has adapted that much yeah, yeah. and even even more so if we're destined for really funky beer i mean some of our are 65 70 100 ibu plus like almost look like ipa recipes and it, it just keeps all this acidity completely in check almost non-existent when you say that, you say for your funky beers, so you are specifically trying to optimize for that kind of aged hop funk character over the acidity and massively controlling acidity then. Yep. And then that becomes blending stock to blend back in at any of the four or five points later down in the line. Okay. Interesting. Rather than having to be its own finished beer, that will just add that kind of aspect to the finished blended beer. Yep. And it's it's usually not cask for cask it might be five ten gallons here sometimes it might be an entire cask that goes in okay interesting and uh, you know are there hops that you lean on for that you know because i imagine you, you want to capture some kind of a little bit echo of uh, you know european uh, you know flair the kind of origin for these are there some hops when you're when you're pushing that many ibus into a beer you're always going to get some of that character out of it especially with the saison stuff we we like diversity so we brew those with a, a multitude of different hops and yeah. it it makes nice layers within our stacks um we have an a surplus amount of aged cascades i think they were 2014s or 2015s that we've been aging since 2017 basically um and we brew a handful of spontaneous beer that's obviously all aged cascades um but we'll brew some kind of saison style recipes that do get the mixed culture with aged hops as well um, sometimes there's some pressure pellets like high alpha pellets and age hops together. Sometimes it's just the age hops. Yeah. How do you track, uh, you know, IBU contribution of aged hops? It's a big question mark on my spreadsheet. <laughs> um, so no yeah, answer. It's just a question no, mark. <laughs> yeah. We've never sent it out for yeah, protesting yeah. or anything. And I don't know how to begin to uh, try and figure that out, but I would say just like sensorily wise, it's probably if we boil about a half a pound per per barrel for the full three hour boil on those spontaneous beers. Um, you know, it tastes pretty bitter. I would say it's probably thirty to forty IBUs, or at least perceived. Yeah, I don't know if there's actually any alpha acid to isomerize anymore, but 
it's definitely a bitter bitter wart when you knock it out and we've brewed them all across the board anywhere from a half a pound of the barrel at the beginning of a three-hour boil to i think we did three pounds per barrel all in the cool ship like as basically a, a stand in the cool ship and we've i think that we've kind of both all the agreements that with the spontaneous beers that we like early hops and long boil instead of the cool ship edition hmm. or in addition to the cool ship edition our cool ship does have a false bottom in it so we usually rack into it with all the troop and everything so hops are in there through the entire overnight cool ship process as well what's the what do you find the difference you know between the you know cool ship hopping and uh early hopping and long boil it's really the bitterness that Spencer was talking about, mm-hmm. and, and we want that in our younger spawn beer for sure. Um, the late stuff does get pretty fruity if we put it in. I mean, it's essentially a Whirlpool edition with a very long stand. So I like it kind of has a mustiness that I like a lot about it and and a nice bitter that ages out. Um, I really think the sweet spot with our spawn beer is at the two-year mark. Um, a lot of that is because our cellar is not temperature-controlled. But I like that's where it's kind of balanced within our processes, where the bitterness has started to subside and the acidity is nice and present, but not over the top. Um, we do make some three-year blends, but the bulk of those three-year blends are are two-year cask heavy. Interesting. So uh, you know, right? There's there's that piece of tradition, obviously, uh, you know, that comes out of the that Belgian, uh, you know, lambic and spontaneous brewing tradition. Um, but it's interesting to see you apply that to your own American context. And I mean, it's obvious from a philosophical standpoint, it's something that I love seeing, you know, that, uh, um, you, you know, it's even like Jean Vanois has said, you can make spontaneous beer anywhere. I mean, you may be able, you may not be able to make it the way that exactly the way they make it in, uh, the Seine Valley, um, but you can make it and you can make it good. And we've seen that all over the place from, from Jester King to Beechwood, obviously you all, you, you know, in Nashville. And so a lot of that becomes adapting to the process. It's interesting to hear you say that, uh, you know, you found this sweet spot for your aged stock. Um, but I also love the idea that, uh, you know, you're focusing on American hops with Cascade, uh, versus, you know, say, you know, uh, leaning on more noble varieties. Um, what do you, what do you get from that? What, uh, you know, what do you, what do you, you know, is that a philosophical decision? Is that a flavor decision? Uh, that's kind of what we were presented with early on. Um, there, there was another <laughs> that's brewery. What you down get. In, yeah, okay. uh, there was a brewery down in Alabama that had closed their doors, and they were yeah. using holy hops, and were basically giving them away. I guess I did one batch in like the eighteen to nineteen year, but we really didn't start leaning into them until the nineteen twenty winter, which is kind of when Spencer started, or when Spencer started making the wort. Um, and we really did a couple that year, but the 2021 winter, we made a lot of spawn beer and a lot of aged top beer. So at that point, our hops had been aging open in a hot warehouse for four years. And they've definitely keep changing and evolving. Goodness, we have three, 400 pounds of it, hopefully. What is what does your aging process look like? Uh, they're up in the rafters of the brewery, basically. Okay. Um, okay. All opened up, exposed. Um, we, we like to go break the bricks up as far as what we're going to use for the next year, the summer before. Um, so oh, so they're, still, they're sitting up there bailed then? Yeah, they're in, okay. in 10 pound bales. Oh, okay. Um, so it, it looks like a 44 pound hop box size, but 10 pounds. So most of them are just opened on, on the top to expose just the top of the air. And then kind of at the end of the brewing season, we like to go and just put them in like rubber made tubs and break them apart. And that's usually what we use for the next year then. 
I love watching everyone's methods from the, the Jester King barn uh, with bags in the rafters to uh, Grimm in New York City that has bags kind of hanging uh, high on the walls. Uh, um, you know, it's uh, it's interesting. Or you know, the veil where, uh, you know, Matt has his bins and he's, you know, recite, reshuffling. Yeah, these rotating and, through. Yeah. He's almost got like a Solera of aged hops there in some sort of way. Uh, uh, interesting to see how, you know, American brewers are, are doing this. Uh, you know, and those just sit out in ambient uh you know year round yeah they're the palette it's right on top of the boiler room on this mezzanine on top of the boiler so it's, it's pretty hot up there Ooh. especially in tennessee summers it's very hot yeah yeah um now i assume because you're trying to you know take this natural approach to beer that you're not doing a ton with uh you know water chemistry um but uh you know uh, how do you how do you treat water for these beers uh yeah we for all the mixed culture beer we we just roll with the Tennessee water that, you know, the national municipal water, um, it goes through a carbon filter and I tree boil all of our brewing liquor, um, just precipitate on it, any extra minerality. Yeah. But other than that, it's just, you know, Cumberland river water. <laughs> sure. Sure. Well, let's then let's, let's talk about, you know, the blending process. You know, you, you, you know, brew, you, you know, brew these warts, you throw them in, you know, go through your fermentation process, put them in barrels. I mean, you're using a pretty, you know, consistent barrel stock or do you vary, um, you know, barrel stock that you are aging these into? They're all neutral wine barrels um, yeah. or they come to us at what the, the wineries consider neutral. Um, I would say that because we're not temperature controlled, we're definitely getting more oak exposure than the wineries think because they're generally in a temperature controlled warehouse. Tennessee, it's just like whiskey. It moves in and out of the barrels in the summertime when it gets on our warehouse. Um, we also age our beers for comparatively a pretty long time. You know, it's two to three years in oak. So we have a nice oak structure and tannin to just about all of our beers that we produce. Um, but as far as what the type of barrel is and what it is, it's a vessel for us. So that's a place to put it for that extended period of time. Um, we will take some specialty barrels and finish, um, much like Scotch uses like a sherry or a port barrel to finish theirs. We'll take Tennessee whiskey barrels or bourbon barrels and kind of round out some of these blends and give it vanilla and char and booze um, and use that as a finishing barrel. Um, those are usually one and done the neutral barrels. We use them till they make bad beer. Um, we obviously coop our barrels daily. Um, probably just about every barrel in our cellar at this point is, uh, I think every barrel has been opened up and cleaned on the inside. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of kind of like wine stone that's left behind in them that you really just got to get in there with some elbow grease and, and get some of those crystals off. Um, every now and then you'll find a blister on the inside that's filled with, you know, wine on the backside of it that you want to pop and open up. But because they become open top fermenters, almost everything has gone through that process. Um, so especially in the winter time, we're taking goodness, 10, 15 barrels apart a day and hit it with elbow grease, hit it with a pressure washer, put them back together, swell them. Our steamer runs nonstop in the winter time highly manual process. So then yeah. let's, let's walk through blending. You decide, you know, you now got, you know, you're looking back at your stock from, you know, the previous year or two summers ago, or, you know, that's past its two summers. Um, you know, you're not, you, you kind of know what you have, but then you have to think about the beers that you're going to make from what you have. Um, you know, it's not necessarily an automatic process at that point. Um, how does, how do you start to create the products that you're then going to, um, 
you know, to, to package or to at least think about this next step that these are going to take as you start moving these into the next phase um, and making some decisions. So, you know, are, are you sampling all of these barrels and then saying, oh, we should, we could make this, this, and this with this? Are you coming up with, like, I would love to make this kind of thing and I, you know, what do I have that could kind of fit into that? Talk to me about the creative process and then how you go about, you know, um, narrowing down your options into what you're ultimately going to make and release as, as beers. It's definitely a retroactive, like back end approach where instead of having a concept from the get go and say, this is what we're looking to make. Um, I, I like to allude it to kind of painting pictures with the colors we've created. Um, so we'll go through and, and see what we have, taste pretty much everything in the cellar right at the beginning of the blending season. The blending season's right about now, kind of before the brewing season starts because we want to fill the barrels right back up with fresh beer. Um, but we'll go through and it, it's a balancing act of making sure that our tasting room board is balanced and that we have peach beer and strawberry beer and wet hot beer and cherry beer and you know bourbon barrel aged beer and really like we have to think four to six months ahead when we're blending because we battle php in the bottles pretty bad mm. so it's half of what do we need and half of what do we have um so like for the wet hot project for instance there's probably 40 different casks in in the cellar of wet hops of different various stages. Some of them have been on the wet hops for uh, three months at this point. Some of them have been on the wet hops for 15 months at this point. And you are, we'll go age, and pull you all are the, aging this beer on wet hops for 15 months. Yeah. Uh, one of the casks that went into the wet hop strata was from the previous season and been on the hops for 15, 16 months until it was blended in. Um, one of those casks was on second use strata wet hops that we had pulled a strata beer off the year before and then put another ward on top of that. And one of them was a, a double strength. So instead of 10 pounds in one cask, it was 20 pounds in one cask. DDH. So there was three different components of three different ages. Um, DWH, right? Double wet hops, right? And it was three different base beers. That should be a thing, right? It should, DWH. <laughs> um, so really we, we look at, we, we always want to make a wet hop reserve or we've been trying to, which is kind of a blend of all of the wet hops or whatever we think fits into the blend. So we kind of try and nail that one down first. And then we look at what other casts stand out to do like a single strain or get fruited with them. So we've done like peaches and strata wet hops blended together before, um, some of them, I like to put some of the same bases on that work and kind of complement the hops. So like the Idaho 7 go on top of a pretty citrusy base, the Amarillo go on top of an orange base, the Strata goes on a pretty neutral blonde base. Um, the Strata helps themselves like with the way that we process them and age on them and with our culture, it gives a ample amount of passion fruit that is very unique. And I've never gotten that out of the hot side. You know, strata on the hot side, right. very dank and marijuana and weedy, but extended aging on top of these wet hops with it already acidic and complex beer, it screams passion fruit jumping out of the glass. It's a really unique situation there. Um, we've done sterling before that went on like a lime, kind of more limey citrus base. So we kind of try and pair the barrel to the hop and then blend on the backside. 
we're getting truly weird here, which is what I absolutely love. Because, oh, yeah. you know, when I when I was thinking about this, it's like, oh, you know, I'm, you're going to macerate on wet hops. But no, you're macerating on different concentrations of wet hops, different years of wet hops yeah. that have been aging on those wet hops for different kinds of... <laughs> and then you're blending... Uh, you're choosing hops with the base beer based on the flavor of that, uh, you know, base beer and the way that that's going to, okay, this is, this is awesome. Um, <laughs> but I love the kind of intention and complexity that, that comes with this. I mean, I think we're now going to be, have to redefine wet hop beer because, you know, it's wet hops, but it's then sitting on wet hops for 15 months. That is the strangest wet hop process that I've ever heard a brewer, uh, employ for that. But, you know, what you mentioned is really interesting. How do, how does that mixed culture interact with the flavors in wet hops? What do you find in working, you know, in that kind of uh, uh, environment and how, you know, your culture then pulls different flavors out than say, you know, what a normal IPA brewer making, uh, you know, a beer with wet hops might get. That's a little hard to say because we've never, we don't have the opportunity really to do wet hops on the hop side um, just because we're so far away. Um you know, we're typically working with like anywhere between 20 and 60 pounds, um, of each variety. And it's, it's 10 to 20 pounds per cask. Um, if we were in the Northwest or if we had hops that grew, I'd love to make a harvest ale, especially like on our pure culture side, but I don't have very much experience with that. I don't know that Spencer's ever made a harvest ale either. I mean, it's, it's just kind of the part of the country that we're in. This is the way that we're able to use them. Um, We've tasted the barrels young and they're they're very different when they're on hops for two to three weeks than they are on hops for two to three months versus 15, 16 months. Um, what, I think is that? Definitely, what is that difference? I, I they're mean, pretty I am grassy okay. early on um, and as it ages out, um, they become very fruity. Yeah, it's kind of counterintuitive to what you would think. Like, it's, they definitely, I, I was really big proponent of let's get the hops off quicker at first. And then we tasted them on, we tasted the beer on the hops after like one month, two months, three months. And it's just kind of polyphenolic and grassy. Like you would kind of expect with a longer contact on hops. But once they've go, gone through, you know, six, seven months on the hops, it definitely, I think the low pH and the alcohol content must be coaxing out some, some different compounds. Yeah. And maybe it definitely mellows out and definitely comes through completely different than than it does super young and it could be pertanomyces it's metabolizing some of these compounds and breaking them down into other fruity flavors as well um it's kind of interesting when we're talking about the wet hop is last year we in gvf specifically we put the wet hop reserve in gvf last year we put it in the wet hop category and basically the judges came back and said this beer is really unique and really cool but it's not a wet hop beer try putting it in barrel aged sour so this year we chose the Strata. I mean, when we sat down and looked at all the GMBF entries, we sat at the bar and had a whole bunch of different bottles open and tasted through. And it's Spencer was really better at, at that than I am as far as like pairing with the category. And we chose Strata and put it in to barrel aged sour like they suggested last year with the wet hop, and that's what they were looking for. So it, it worked pretty well for us. But sure. Our, our gut was put it in a wet hop, and we're like, it's going to be unique. It's going to stand out, but that's not what the judges were looking for on that day last year. Interesting. So, so then, you know, the double wet hopped and the, the short contact, you know, add in these additional kinds of blending characters and different kinds of aspects of that fresh hop, uh, you know, thing that you're trying to capture in this. What are those, yeah. you know, 
And that's all about, you know, balancing the beer out. And there was actually some spontaneous beer blended into that as well, just to give another layer of depth and complexity. I mean, you've, you've tried a lot of our beers and that's really what we're looking for is, is very deep, complex beers across the entire program. And there's different acidity levels, there's different fruit forward levels, there's different hop comp like component levels, and it's kind of building the full palatable experience. And once again, it's not entire casks that go in. It's, you know, we'll do benchtop blends with portions and then recreate that in the blending tank and start small and, and scale up until we find something that we feel enjoyable. And, you know, so in addition to fresh hop varieties, you've also extended this out fr- into fresh hops and fruit on, on top okay. of that. Um, what was the impetus behind that? And, uh, you know, how does that process vary? I mean, are, are, you know, is, is this now then a blend of, you know, uh, you know, fruited sour beer and the wet hop sour beer that's then, you know, done through the same kind of blending process? Um, or is this a, you know, uh, now we take the next step after we've achieved a blend that we've come up with and how do you start thinking about how you're going to, you know, are you leaning into flavors that you're sensing in some small way in this already, or are you trying to, you know, build some contrast with what you have there? How does that creative process look? Um, it's definitely about building contrast, I think. And, and we've even gone as far as taking fruited beer from the summer before and putting it onto wet hops instead mm. of putting a neutral barrel on. And we've done it the other way of taking a wet hop beer and put it onto fruit. Um, and it goes back to diversity and, it, it's nice to balance our board with something other than just Amarillo wet hop, just straw wet hop. And by like peaches has worked really well. Um, we, I did one cask with watermelon one time and that one's still sitting on it. It's pretty weird. Uh, we'll see if it can blend it at some point, but <laughs> um, it, it's kind of nice for the, the consumer on the back end because they are pretty fruit forward beers with our approach to it. And then it's, it's balancing that or complementing that with other fruit actual fruit additions. Um, all the fruit we use is whole fruit. It's all grown in Tennessee. It's all hand processed. Um, back to like the seasonal process, it's the summertime is standing around cutting fruit. The wintertime is brewing into barrels and cooping. Um, but it's all about, yeah, complementing what's already there or trying to coax it to go in a direction where we want it to go. You guys have obviously been doing a lot of experimenting around this in a lot of different you know facets. Um, are there some things that haven't worked for you or some, uh, some experiments, you know, with these that, uh, that have you really learned from and, uh, and won't be repeating? What helps on dark beer hasn't worked for us. Okay. Uh, we, we tried that a couple different times, like on a Flanders or a Brune, um, Centennial wet hops haven't worked for us very well. They, they're pretty lettucey. Uh, they never get kind of those, those fruit flavors that we're looking for. We've dumped a lot of strawberry beer. Um, and kind yeah. of have narrowed like our strawberry source down to just one farm that, that works really well. But there's three or four different farms that those berries were given plasticky or band-aid or sometimes like chemically. We've, we've definitely dumped a lot of beer. We've definitely messed the, missed the window on certain barrels that just aged too long and either didn't have the capacity for bottles or didn't have the capacity to get into a tank at the right time. Um, you know, so it's, it's a lot about managing that. And like, like you said, 500 casks is quite a bit. Um, I think the most that we brewed was 
400 BBL in one year. And at this point, we're kind of brewing 200, 200, 250 BBL a year. It's kind of a sweet spot for what we're selling and what we're have the ability to package and, and blend through. Sure. I'm sure. How often do you go through and, you know, taste and evaluate those barrels? I imagine it's a, you know, you, you brew them and let them sit for a long time and then you start tasting and maybe start tasting a little bit more frequently. Yeah. I mean, it's, it changes so much in the first summer that I, I kind of stopped pulling nails on the younger beer. Um, that being said, we've started blending some younger, especially this year, we brewed a lot of more bitter Saison. And I've blended, or we've blended a lot of that into some of our final blends that have came out this year. And it's kind of nice to have that younger note in there as well. But there was a couple of years where we didn't taste them until they were through a summer. Um, there was some barrels that we moved over. We moved cellars in 2021. And there were some barrels that were brewed in 2019 that didn't even a, a nail in them when they moved over to the cellar. Um, and most of those barrels were great, honestly. And some of those barrels just got packaged in the last couple of weeks. So, but once they get a nail in them, and especially as we're getting towards the end of the summer and the beginning of the kind of blending season, we'll go through and, and taste quite a bit. Um, you can only really taste so many at a time, you know, so you get through 16 or 20 and then you kind of have to take a break and come back right. the next day. So we'll just work our way down the cellar. Um, sometimes it's me and Spencer and our other production teammate, Mark, that all three go through. And sometimes it's just, me with a notepad and a piece of chalk it's kind of funny to see some of our notes and like scribbles on the barrels sometimes with chalk um and and then a pretty doctor's notebook that nobody could but myself i think sure sure you you mentioned earlier that uh that managing thp is something that uh that you all have to pay attention to let's you know maybe let's talk a little just as we finish up here talk about the bottle conditioning process sure um and how you know what you've you know what you've learned about managing that in your finished beer you know and how that has uh, impacted some of your process around that in the last like probably two years two and a half years we really put more of an effort on getting active bottling yeast going in, in an Erlenmeyer or carboy um you know the day of packaging or the day before um we found that that just gives us a more consistent carbonation right away and it helps clean up the thp a little bit quicker than stuff we you know, we we've tried everything. We've tried wine yeast, cast like s- specific bottle conditioning yeast. We've even we'll take sometimes top crop off of the open tops um, and throw that in the blending tank. But yeah, we've had the most luck and success um, getting a flask going with s- just a light dextrose solution um, with some like just CBC one cast bottling yeast. So um, we'll see carbonation, you know, within the first couple weeks, and then. Depending on the season, obviously it's a little warmer in our warehouse in the summer. We'll, we can clear THP in sometimes, you know, four to eight weeks. And as we're cooling down through the winter here, anything that gets packaged right now, we're probably not going to be releasing until the spring. It's a nice long process then. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, um, it's not as much managing the THP. It's it's going to be there. Yeah. And it's just waiting it out. And yeah. it, it always clears up on us. Um and even like we do a little bit of package into bag and box that isn't re-fermented. It's packaged still. And we've had those get THP. And there was one that took well over a year to clear up, but it eventually went away. And that's without re-fermentation. Um, we're pretty lucky that our, our third production member, Mark, is a, a super palate taster for THP. And 
I, I joke sometimes that he he gets THP in his toothpaste in the morning, um, but it's it's really nice to have that aspect and and on our team and somebody that can go through and say, if Mark clears it of THP, we know it's good to go. It's fair. It's fair. Well, I think uh, it's a good time to wrap up here, and I appreciate you guys uh, you know, um, talking with me about your process with Wet Hop Strata. g and Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and reliability with 24-7 service and support. BSG and HVG bring you a mirror with classic hoppy, slightly herbal, and zesty lemon aromas. Try Old Orchard's flavored craft juice concentrate blends your next craft beverage, AccuBrew. Helps you detect problems before they ruin a batch. Pro Brew has rotary can fillers in stock with a two to four week lead time. Omega's thialized yeasts bring intense guava and passion fruit aromas out of your malt and hops. Go green with multi-pack handles from Robert's Poly Pro and ABS Commercial can design the perfect setup for you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, any others, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button and help support us bringing you great brewing content week in and week out. Um, Joel and Spencer, if people want to learn more about Barique, where where can they learn more about you all and uh, the beautiful mixed fermentation beers that, and award-winning mixed fermentation beers that you make? Um, BarikeBrewing.com is the website on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, Barique Brewing. Cool. Thanks for talking with me. It's been great. Cheers. Yeah, thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Jamie. This podcast has been brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those who love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. 